98K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Sean Kennedy. Tonight's headlines. A hotel in Chimsa Choi is evacuated over a coronavirus outbreak. The government considers letting Hong Kongers in Beijing, Shanghai and other mainland cities vote in the SAR's elections. And the World Food Programme wins this year's Nobel Peace Prize. A Chimsa Choi hotel has evacuated all of its guests after three more staff members were confirmed with COVID-19 today. Around 300 employees have been sent to a quarantine camp as the hotel closes for 14 days for thorough disinfection. This report from Maggie Ho. Several vans were sent to the Royal Garden on Modi Road by the Centre for Health Protection to take some 300 of the hotel's workers to quarantine centres. Guests, meanwhile, were busy checking out. Those who spoke to RTHK didn't seem to be too worried. This woman says she booked a room at the hotel because her home is under renovation. She says she received a letter and a call from hotel management telling her to pack up and leave. She says they've arranged for her to stay at another hotel nearby and the arrangements have gone smoothly. This man says he isn't worried about getting infected because staff at the hotel always wore face masks and he only took his off to eat. At a press conference, the Center for Health Protection's Dr. Chuang Sok Kwan said a total of four male workers at the hotel have now been confirmed to have COVID. So they decided that all the other male staff who used the same changing room as them would have to be quarantined. The three hotel workers are among eight new confirmed COVID cases today, with all but one of the infections locally acquired. The Centre for Health Protection says it will send out vans to Central, Wan Chai and Chim Sa Choi to collect specimens from staff. Four temporary testing centres will also be in operation in different districts for five days. Under Secretary for Health Choi Tak Yi says the move alarming signs of silent transmission in the territory. We are trying to uh, think of more flexible and innovative measures to encourage people to come forward for testing. So the mobile service, uh, of the, this is one means to provide outreach uh, service to and to reach out to people who may find it more convenient than going to a centre of a particular timing for testing. RTHK understands that the government is considering allowing Hong Kongers living in some of the mainland's biggest cities to vote in future SAR elections and not just those in the Greater Bay Area. Chief Executive Carrie Lam is expected to announce the move in next week's policy address. Jimmy Choi has details. Sources say the government is looking at amending the laws to set up polling stations on the mainland and is considering which cities would be suitable for the arrangement. The government is understood to be more inclined towards big cities like Beijing, Shanghai and Guangdong, where more Hong Kong people live, but it hasn't considered whether voters would vote electronically or by mail. The information follows reports that the government is mulling plans to let Hong Kong residents living in the Greater Bay Area vote in the next Lashko polls. While pro-establishment political parties have backed the idea, the pro-democracy camp have slammed it as a blatant attempt to rig the elections. Sources told RTHK that if people were allowed to vote on the mainland, the SAL's Beijing office, its economic and trade offices in Guangdong, Shanghai, Chengdu and Wuhan may function as polling stations. In 2012 and 2016, the government amended election laws in May and June. Sources say the government would have to finish amending the relevant laws as soon as possible if it were to allow voters to vote on the mainland for next year's Lechko elections. 
The 2020 Nobel Peace Prize has been awarded to the United Nations World Food Programme. The Norwegian Nobel Committee says the WFP has acted as a driving force in efforts to prevent the use of hunger as a weapon of war and conflict. David Beasley, the WFP's executive director, had this reaction to the news. This is the first time in my life I've been speechless. I mean, mean, this is unbelievable. Talk about uh, the most exciting point in time in your life is the Nobel Peace Prize, and it's because of the WFP family. They're out there in the most difficult, complex places in the world, whether it's war, conflict, climate extremes, it doesn't matter. They're out there, and they deserve this award. And, And wow, 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 wow. Some 107 organizations and 211 individuals were nominated for this year's Peace Prize. A Norwegian politician put forward the people of Hong Kong for their fight for democracy. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is five minutes past 11. The hospital authority has emailed staff who went on strike in February, asking them to explain their absence. Thousands of medical workers joined a five-day strike to call for the closure of Hong Kong's borders to prevent the spread of COVID-19. The HA Employees Alliance, which organised the action, says members shouldn't reply to the email yet, and it will provide them with a template after discussions with lawyers. The authority says it will handle the issue according to personnel rules and based on legal practice. An infectious diseases expert has backed government plans to make it mandatory for high-risk groups to take COVID-19 tests. Candace Wong reports. The government is looking into whether new legislation is needed to allow authorities to order mandatory tests for high-risk groups, such as people who live in care homes. Infectious diseases expert Professor David Hoy from the Chinese University says this is a good idea that will help the cities fight against COVID-19. If more tests are conducted on a mandatory basis, he says, health authorities would be able to identify infected people more quickly. He said past experience with voluntary tests have shown that many people offered voluntary tests don't end up taking part, pointing in particular to a poor response rate from taxi drivers in a past exercise. Professor Hoy, who advises the government on epidemic control measures, also warns that the administration will have no choice but to tighten social distancing measures if the city continues to see more COVID-19 cases. But he doesn't think the situation is severe enough to warrant schools being closed down or for people to stop going into the office for now. Officials say the COVID-19 community treatment facility at Asia World Expo has been expanded substantially with the addition of almost a thousand extra beds. The hospital authority says the expansion has greatly improved the territory's ability to handle any new wave of infections. Work has also begun on a temporary hospital next to Asia World Expo and is expected to be completed within four months. Pro-Beijing heavyweight Chang Yoxing says Chief Executive Carrie Lam made scathing remarks to him about the DAB when she took office, complaining about the quality of its politicians and saying it fails to provide the government with any talent. Candace Wong has details. Zhang Yuxing, who is the founding chairman of the DAB, says Mrs. Lam complained rather impolitely to him after she took up the CE post in 2017. He told an RTHK program that she said the party had failed to nurture any talent for the government for years. Mr. Zhang, who is a former LegCo president, said Mrs. Lam was also unhappy with the performance of two bureau chiefs from the DAB at the time. Time. 
Former Commerce Minister Greg So didn't stay on in the government when Mrs Lam became CE. But Mr Zhang said she let Lao Konghua stay on as Home Affairs Chief so it wouldn't be so embarrassing for the pro-Beijing party. Mr Zhang said he told the CE that the DAB's mission is to win elections, not groom talent for the government. He said regardless of who the chief executive is, the DAB needs to win enough seats in LegCo to be able to support the administration's governance. And he'd rather see more talented people standing for election than sending them to work for the government. Mr Deng also revealed that Carrie Lam's predecessor, C.Y. Lung, had invited him to serve as an undersecretary in his administration, but he said he declined the offer because it didn't seem like such a good post. A stage designer has been found not guilty of possession of offensive weapons in Hong Kong on Halloween last year amid the anti-government protests. Jimmy Choi reports. Kowloon City Magistracy had heard that 27-year-old Chen Zi Hin was among five people who gathered on Plainfield Road around midnight on November the 1st last year. A police officer earlier told the court that he had seen one of them waving an American flag. The officer stopped and searched Mr. Zhang at the scene and found him carrying a spanner, a foldable knife and two pairs of pliers. Mr. Zhang was charged with one count of possession of offensive weapons. Delivering her verdict, Magistrate Jun Zhang said the tools possessed by the defendant were not illegal in themselves. She pointed out that the defendant had told the officer then that he had brought with him the tools for stage designing work. The magistrate also noted that the police officer had acknowledged that it wasn't a case of people taking part in a lawful assembly. The court heard that there had been protests about 800 metres away earlier that evening, near the Mongkok police station, but were over by then. She also highlighted the fact that the officer had not cautioned the defendant at the scene, suggesting that he did not reasonably believe that Mr Zhang had committed an offence. So, the court could not confirm that the defendant had intended to use the tools for illegal purposes, so he was found not guilty. The magistrate ruled that the prosecution will have to bear the legal costs of the case. A former telecoms worker has been found guilty of posting personal information on police officers on the internet during last year's anti-extradition protests. Damon Pang reports. Chan Keng Hei was convicted on three counts of dishonest use of computer and one count of disclosing others' data without consent. The district court says a jail sentence has to be considered because of the severity of the doxing case. It is adjourned until early November for sentencing and a 32-year-old has been remanded in custody. Mr Chan was convicted of using his company's computer to obtain the information and spread it via social media last year. District councillors across the political divide are helping a group of residents campaign against a proposed change to a development project above West Kowloon Station. They say Sunungkai Properties has dramatically altered the original plan. Violet Wong reports. The residents and councillors say the original plan was to build three towers with a maximum height of 120 metres. But now the developer wants to build two towers of 181 metres. They say they fear the higher buildings will block the view from nearby flats. DAB councillor Hong Chiu-Hua says he's collected over 500 letters from residents who oppose the plan. Among them is Mrs Lau, who says she's voicing concerns not just for herself, but other people living in the area as well. It's a very big deviation from the original proposal which they win the bid. I think it's very unfair to the other bidders who didn't win the bid. We 
also afraid that this will set a very bad example for the undeveloped area in Kowloon area, the, the one that uh, along the harbor side. The other developer will learn from this example and increase the height of the building, the more residents will be affected. Meanwhile, Democratic Party community officer Cindy Lee says the tall buildings with their reflective glass walls would trap heat and cause a nuisance to those living around them. Unlike Central IFC, it's not a site that far from a neighborhood. This site is exactly right next to residents living in the uh, waterfront, Sorrento. These people were supposed to live there for a number of years. And if there's reflective classes, and that would be a real disturbance for them for years. She says although the developer has proposed increasing a public area at the development by 70% and building a piazza, She's worried that they won't be that easy for people to access. And Tunakai Property says its new plan will create a better living environment. It says its proposal to build two towers instead of three and to increase the area of public and green space can make the site less crowded and better ventilated. And now it's time for a look ahead to the weekend's football action with the BBC's John Bennett. Football Look Ahead from the BBC. This is John Bennett at BBC Global Sports. We're halfway through this international break and the UEFA Nations League is the main focus of the football world this weekend. Germany are aiming for their first victory in the competition this season when they face Ukraine. They've picked up just two points from their opening two matches, but Ukraine go into the match off the back of a 7-1 defeat to France in an international friendly on Wednesday. To add to Ukraine's concerns, Germany could have big stars Neuer, Kroos, Kimmich, Werner and Gnabry back in the first 11 after they were rested for a 3-3 friendly draw with Turkey. In the same group, Spain will be looking to make it back-to-back wins in the UEFA Nations League when they take on Switzerland at home. Luis Enrique's side beat Ukraine 4-0 in their last game in the competition. 17-year-old Barcelona wonder kid Ansu Fati is expected to start for Spain. Two of the favourites for next year's European Championships meet on Sunday when England hosts Belgium. England have made an unconvincing start in this season's Nations League with a narrow win in Iceland and a bore draw versus Denmark. Belgium, meanwhile, have won both of their opening games against the same opponents. Harry Kane should start after being rested when England beats Wales in midweek. And a reminder of our top stories tonight. A hotel in Chimsa Choi is evacuated over a coronavirus outbreak. The government considers letting Hong Kongers in Beijing, Shanghai and other mainland cities vote in the SAR's elections. And the World Food Programme wins this year's Nobel Peace Prize. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3. It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's Newswrap programme. A public health expert says compulsory COVID-19 testing may not be necessary if the government focuses on high-risk institutions such as care homes and prisons. University of Hong Kong professor Benjamin Cowling says there would probably be a lot of enthusiasm for tests in such places anyway. He also told Mike Weeks that anti-epidemic measures will probably be tightened again with infection numbers likely to creep up over the next week or so. What we would expect within the next few weeks, maybe by late October is a lot of the social distancing measures would be put back in place. So right now is a time for all of us to, to see our friends, maybe, maybe take the last chance for, for a month or two to, to get together with people. But really for COVID, one of the critical social distancing measures is avoiding 
large groups of people gathering together. So it may already be too late to have big family gatherings. But I think what we're going to see by later this month is is restrictions back to groups of four people and closure of a lot of those leisure facilities, karaoke, bars, nightclubs, all of those kind of things that that we know are locations where COVID can spread. A priority right now would be protecting and shielding institutions from COVID. And one of the best ways to do that is to have regular testing of staff and even residents in institutions. I guess top, top priority would be regular testing of staff in elderly homes. But I don't think that started yet. So you agree with the uh, government's suggestion that high-risk groups should be compelled to take uh, coronavirus tests? I think it would be very reasonable to test staff in elderly homes on a regular basis. I'm not sure whether making the testing mandatory would make a lot of difference. I think there'd be enthusiasm from staff in elderly homes to take the test anyway, because that would protect the residents. Okay, and announcing this, the Health Secretary said that the government wanted to get a clearer picture of the COVID situation. But didn't we get that from the mass testing that went on last month? I think we learned a lot from the mass testing. So on days when we were having just handfuls of cases, we knew that the mass testing was able to pick up a few other cases. So that tells us that the confirmed cases are are quite a, a good representation of what's going on in the community. And we are missing some mild, some asymptomatic cases, but not a lot, not an enormous number. You know, there's not an enormous submerged iceberg underneath the tip of the iceberg that we can see with the confirmed cases. So that was really reassuring. Uh, at the same time, we do also therefore know that we're not picking up every single infection in the community. That yesterday when there were 17 cases, there could well have been a few others that were, that were not picked up, that were missed. But hopefully those were the type with no viral loads that, that are not so contagious. So I think the mass testing was reassuring in that sense. But how do we use this information to try to ensure better infection control? Oh, that's a very good question. I think right now the focus has got to be on testing and tracing, doing a really good job of the contact tracing, because that's disruptive to the people involved, maybe the people that go to quarantine, but it delays the need for social distancing for all of us in the community. But as I said at the beginning, I do think we, w- we should expect social distancing measures to be put back in place uh, within maybe two or three weeks. France has recorded more than 18,000 cases in just 24 hours and the government has raised the coronavirus alert to its maximum level in four cities. The BBC's Danny Eberhard has more. Well, four cities have been raised to the maximum alert level. That's Lyon, Lille, Grenoble and Saint-Étienne. Um, and then there are two other cities which are very close to it and may be put on that level very shortly. That's Toulouse and Montpellier. Um, and now how it's going to affect uh, national life. It's, the, this, uh, there are a couple of places in France that are already at the maximum alert, Paris, Marseille and the uh, territory of Guadeloupe in the Caribbean. Now, in, in those areas, what you see are bars and cafes are closed for at least two weeks and restaurants, there are tighter restrictions and, and curfews of 10 p.m. So that it will be those measures plus other ones um, that are yet to be announced, things like perhaps closing gyms and, and swimming pools, that sort of thing. Um, the infection rates are high and people are very worried about rising uh, admission rates to intensive care of coronavirus cases in places like Paris. One thing they haven't done, um, they have not imposed travel restrictions, which will be welcome news for people planning to travel in the school holidays. Uh, Madrid and nine neighbouring uh, towns were all placed under a partial lockdown, restricting movements in and out. Um, but this has now been reversed. 
the Madrid, Madrid regional government basically said that these it didn't agree with these measures and it took the the, the central government uh, uh, restrictions to to court to challenge them. It won the court ruling, um, but then it came around and said uh, to people living in Madrid, don't travel at the moment. They're worried it's a holiday weekend coming up, and they say they're trying to put in new restrictions, which they'll they'll agree they hope with the central government by tomorrow. Um, so after this victory, that you know, it's clear that they're saying this situation is still very serious. Madrid is the worst affected part in Spain. Spain, of course, is the worst of a country affected by the virus proportionately um, in terms of its population. Lots of uh, countries have posted records, um, uh, some of them worse affected than others. So countries like Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, the Netherlands and Austria all posted record daily figures today. Russia, you saw figures of 11,000, uh, just over 11,000 posted. Um, that is very close to a record that was set in May. Uh, the Kremlin has said it's seriously concerned about that. Um, and and uh, people have been warned over this weekend to stay at home. Um, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church is, is self-isolating at the moment. He's said to be in good health, but he might have the virus. And then there are other restrictions brought in in countries like Italy, that it, where there's much tighter face marks restrictions. And in Belgium, in Brussels, cafes and bars have now been closed. The Democratic governor of the U.S. state of Michigan has accused President Trump of encouraging right-wing militia groups after 13 men were charged with an alleged plot to kidnap her. The FBI accused six conspirators of planning to abduct her at a holiday home prior to November's election and take her to a remote location to, as they put it, stand trial for treason. Governor Gretchen Whitmer accused Donald Trump of giving comfort to those who spread fear, hatred and division. Just last week, the President of the United States stood before the American people and refused to condemn white supremacists and hate groups like these two Michigan militia groups. Stand back and stand by, he told them. Hate groups heard the president's words not as a rebuke, but as a rallying cry, as a call to action. Earlier in the year, Governor Whitmer had been the target of particular condemnation from protesters and members of militias over her imposing restrictions to try to curb the coronavirus. The BBC's Nick Bryant reports. Governor Gretchen Whitmer has been a target of angry protests throughout the coronavirus. You remember the scenes when the state capital was actually stormed at one stage by heavily armed members of uh, militia groups. And uh, they've been protesting over the shutdown restrictions that she has put in place. Michigan and, and her leadership really has become a lightning rod. And now the FBI has charged six people with a plot to kidnap her. A conspiracy that allegedly involves links to a right-wing militia group. And the court filing alleges that surveillance was twice conducted at the governor's holiday home. And, and there were also discussions about taking her to a remote location in Wisconsin and, and having a kind of show trial, a, a show trial for treason ahead of the November election. I was actually in Michigan on Friday. There was a very big protest outside the state capitol building. It was focused entirely on Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, it was complaining about the handling of, of seniors who are in care homes. And again, uh, we saw militia groups at that rally. We saw a lot of people bringing guns. It's an open carry state. Uh, there wasn't much of a police presence there. And I said to my cameraman at the time, I hope she is heavily protected. She must feel very worried about her personal safety right now. And yeah, days later, the FBI uh, has this indictment. And 
the FBI agent in the affidavit speaks about several members of this militia group talking about murdering tyrants and taking a sitting governor. The group decided they needed to increase their numbers, encouraged each other to talk to their neighbors and spread the message. And as you say, Christopher Ray, the head of the FBI, has been worried about this uptick of militia activity and these heightened fears of political violence ahead of the November election. The U.S. has announced that it's imposed sweeping new sanctions on Iran. This time, the target is the country's major banks. The BBC's Sebastian Usher has more. There are 18 major banks in Iran that are now being targeted. So this is uh, a real onslaught on the banking sector uh, in Iran. Clearly, it's intended to uh, damage the economy in Iran, which is already in a pretty terrible state, partly due to other U.S. sanctions, but also to, due to many other economic problems in Iran. Now, in announcing this, uh, the U.S. Treasury Department wanted to make a case that this is aimed at what it sees and the Trump administration, of course, sees as the negative uh, 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 the negative policies of Iran, which is supporting um, uh, supporting regional uh, um, the terrorism in, in in the region, and also its nuclear program moving towards nuclear weapons, and then stressing that this isn't meant to block humanitarian help, food and medicine to the Iranian people. Now, there's a lot of doubt whether that is going to be the case. This will essentially stop. Uh, foreign institutions, foreign uh, financial institutions, companies from really doing any business with Iran at all. So how that food and that medicine will be able to get through to Iran is quite a big question. There was a very quick response from a man who's always very speedy on Twitter, uh, the foreign minister, Javad Zarif. He basically uh, said that the US was trying to blow up the remaining channels that Iran still has to provide food and medicine to its people. This in the middle of a coronavirus crisis that's been the worst in the region, uh, uh, the pandemic in Iran. It's still rising, the official figure there, day by day at the moment. And he accused the U.S. of a war crime, saying that it's conspiring to starve the Iranian people. So, you know, that's the level of rhetoric that we're looking at. Just briefly, I think what he's trying to build on there is a sense that Iran has that the U.S. has actually gone so far long this policy under Trump that it's becoming isolated. They're hoping if Biden gets in that that policy will change and there'll be a return to diplomacy. Fighting is continuing between Azerbaijan and ethnic Armenians over the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh as Russia, France and the US push for a ceasefire. The mountain enclave is internationally recognised as part of Azerbaijan but is populated and governed by ethnic Armenians. More than 300 people have died and thousands have been displaced over the past two weeks in the worst fighting since the war in the early 1990s. The BBC's Ola Guerin has met some of those who were driven out of Nagorno-Karabakh at that time. Hello. I'm in a courtyard and some children have just come running, gathering around. I'm surrounded by apartment blocks, very roughly built with a lot of exposed bricks pipes sticking out and there are washing lines strung across from one building to another. This is a place called Darnagul. 2,000 families were housed here after the war in the early 90s. These were families from Nagorno-Karabakh. And many here still dream of returning like Abbas Aliyev, a mustachioed 74-year-old grandfather in a flat cap. 
Yerimizi, yurdumuzu Ermeniler zapt edip bizi kavurup. Armenians took our homeland. They forced us to come here and we have been living here for 27 years. There are seven or eight people in one room. It's very hard to live in these conditions. For all these years while you've been here, 27 years you've been away from Nagorno-Karabakh, how much have you thought about it? I even see it in my dreams. I'm always yearning for it. I cannot forget about it. It's my motherland, my dear land. How do you feel about the people who are there now, about the ethnic Armenians? Could you live with them as neighbors together? Of course. Of course we can live together. We have been very friendly with them. They also don't want the war. The only ones to blame are those sitting at the top. If you ask my opinion, we can live together. The young man standing beside you is, is shaking his head. Can I ask you, how do you feel about the idea of, of living side by side with, with Armenians? No, I can never live with Armenians there because it's a very old area which belongs to Azerbaijan. Karabakh is Azerbaijan. And today I have signed as a volunteer to fight in the war. I am ready with my soul and my blood to fight for my nation and my motherland. Those stories were part of the Newswrap program, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Sean Kennedy from our newsroom. Hi, I'm Lazy Lion. To fight this pandemic, take preventive measures when commuting. Avoid rush hours and busy times and take advantage of flexible working hours. Wear a mask when taking a ride. If possible, open the windows to ventilate the vehicle. Clean your hands with liquid soap and water or alcohol-based hand rub after using public transport or touching public facilities. Social distancing can help prevent the spread of COVID-19. Tips for you and me to prevent COVID-19. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December, we'll have moments to the beginning of nostalgia. I'm your host, Ray Cudero, from now until 1am. You're listening to Mansovani. And an ever, ever popular Lamer.
Let's welcome the wonderful orchestra Mantovani, his orchestra in La Mer, introducing nostalgia for tonight. I'm your host, Ray Cordero, from down to 1 a.m. When Irish eyes are smiling, sure it's like a morning spring. 